You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Pimp Cron, and this is the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast. That is the podcast that you have downloaded and or are streaming in case you did not notice. Um, I would love to hear if some of you are accidentally listening to this. That would really tickle me. I don't know what the circumstances of that would be, but, you know, it could happen, I suppose. We have multiple segments for you tonight and a couple guests as well. So first off, the Tesseract Mailbox with Loremaster Alex. And we are so excited to introduce our very first voicemail call from a listener and it is pretty much anything you would expect from a pimpcron listener the phone number i have finally remembered it after all these shows is 419-972-1811 and that is the place where you can leave me a direct voicemail and if it's interesting it will end up on the air otherwise you can contact me at pimpcron at gmail.com it's spelled exactly how you would think and I also get messages on that. Or you could contact me on the PimpCron Facebook page, and I also take messages on that. I don't want to give any juicy details away from the wonderful voicemail somebody left us, but I think it's pretty entertaining. I think you'll like it. We got a big kick out of it, and it's exactly what you'd expect. What is that? Well, you'll have to find out. Then, after the Tesseract mailbox, we are going to be doing a... A want that or want that not with just James and the Gloomtide Vortex, whatever the hell that is. The next segment, just James will join me as well, and we will be talking about well, here's an idea with a special mission with demons versus tyranids, which I think is really interesting because you know demons can't take the souls of tyranids and tyranids can't take the biomass of demons because there is none. So that's a very interesting thing. And I th- hope you will like that mission. Then we get into Real Talk with the Pimpcron, where it is just I, the Pimpcron, and I discuss whether or not tournaments have any obligation to have decent terrain for their players. It's a hotly debated topic, and everyone has an opinion on it. Well, I will give you mine in case you were wondering. If anybody out there was like, what is the Pimpcron's opinion on tournament terrain? Well, then I will tell you. And finally, we have the Get Brutal, or Let's Get Brutal, with the Pimpcron. And I will be discussing another section of the uh, lore behind my free rules, use your own model, skirmish war game, Brutality. And we will be discussing some more factions that uh, are inhabiting the land of the Aether Realm in my game. So, a couple of them that are my favorites. I'm excited to talk to about them. I believe that's it. Let's get the show on the road and away we go. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. And we're back. It's the Pimcron, and I'm here with Loremaster Alex. Hey guys. And we have a special treat for you today. Loremaster Alex has not heard this yet. I certainly have. And it is our very first voicemail that we have received on the uh, the old voicemail for the account. And um, let's... Uh, now, Loremaster, I, I want to tell <laughs> I you... I am so scared and yet slightly aroused <laughs> at what this could possibly be. So, I just want to say, 
that there's been a lot of hullabaloo about people bad-talking my readers and saying that fam- fans of the old Pimpcron are, um, you know, stupid or they are uneducated or that, you know, they, they're just not good in general. And I always defend them. I go, look, hey, fictional person or whatever that is bad-mouthing my readers. I have good, decent human beings that read my articles, and they appreciate satire. Is this one of them or not one of them? Uh, I, I won't even tell you. Oh, shit. So, <laughs> so I like how excited you are about this. Uh, like, I'm a half mass right now. <laughs> like, I'm, I need to know. Tell okay, me, baby so, girl, because I need so, to know. <laughs> so, after plugging the phone number so many times, right, and being so excited to finally get my first voicemail... Um, it's an interesting, an interesting thing. So, um, I just want to know, I just want to point that I have always defended our readers. I have always, you know, been on your side and this is my very first message from one of you guys. Hold on. It's loading. This makes for great radio. Do, 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 do. Play me, play me a filler, Johnny. Okay. Let's, this is, this is a class act. This person is, is classy. I'm so scared, Scott. Like, I'm going to expect this person to just, like, throw filth at you. <laughs> well, well, actually, I got one of those letters. It's probably played, uh, by the time this is aired. Dang it, that's not at all what I expected it to no. be. <laughs> so, so there you have it. Um, I don't know if any of that played or not. I will play that uh, as a separate track on here so that people can hear it. Um, <laughs> so what are your thoughts on that? Dude needs some fucking Beano. <laughs> <laughs> and while he's at it, he should probably not butt dial people while he's taking a deuce. <laughs> I'm just saying. Kaplunk. Kaplunk. Well, it might be one of our friends. Uh, yeah. Yanking, get, yanking your chain. Yeah, it, it could be. And uh, my, and my, my finger points to JD. JD? Or one of his crew. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Um, and nobody has come forward to claim that they have done it or they were the culprit, but. Could it be Steve? Uh. Bliggity blam? He did, he did, no, he would have bliggity blammed on the, he would have been like. Bliggity blam! And yeah. then hung up. Yeah, no, it, it wasn't, it wasn't him. So. That is the type of class that you and, expect. Yes, that you fight for. That is <laughs> that is the type of class that I've come to expect from from the followers of the, the, the Pimpcron dynasty. Yes. So, uh, do you have any parting words for this? Wipe your ass. <laughs> I mean, like, what else should I fucking say? I mean, like, at the same time, it's everything I hoped it would be, and then not. So I don't even know how to feel about it. I like, I like how at the very end there was that little noise yeah. at the very end. That was that was classy. Now, just for the record, if anybody calls and leaves another voicemail like this, I'm not gonna air it. It can't just every week be voicemails. You're gonna get bombarded farts. with farts. Yes. Yeah, listen to me take a shit. <clears throat> yeah, no. Uh, so. This this kind of tickled me. 
and that's fine. I feel like it's like a modern art piece if you think about <laughs> it. The way he did it, it's like I almost tasted it. You almost I taste- felt like I was there. You know, you can kind of taste the air. Did you close your eyes and you're transported to a, a dingy bathroom stall? Because the way it echoed, I assumed he was in a bathroom stall somewhere. So probably the guy's a glory hole attendant if you think about it. So if somebody could please just um, for a second give us a call and um, not uh, fart on it. That would be awesome. And uh, I think that's it for the fan mail. If if this was, in fact, fan mail, I don't know what it was. but Constructive criticism, criticism via art. Yes. So that was fan mail with Pimpcron and Loremaster Alex. Bye. Bye. Want that or want that not? And this brings us to Want That or Want That Not with the Pimpcron and my partner in crime, Just James. Yep. All right. So today we are talking about the, what is it, the Vortex Gloom Tide something or other? I think it's Gloom Tide Vortex. Gloom Tide Vortex, which is a pretty bad description for a sunken ship. Yeah, fancy name for sunken ship. Sunken ship. Um, watch out on the shoals. It's full of those vortexes. Those Gloom Tide Vortexes. No one says that. Lighthouses were strategically put around the coast of the U.S. so that we don't have so many gloom tide vortexes. Yeah, that's actually so. so the Titanic is a big gloom tide vortex. <laughs> so I have a lot of issues with this model. Um, I know that you don't have as many issues with it. No, not so much. So first off, what's it look like, Just James? It looks like a sunken ship. And I think that's what they were going for. Yes. If they were not going for the whole sunken ship look, I think they missed the mark. Yes. If they weren't going for a sunken ship, they could have made a full-size ship. Now, if they were, if they did have intact ship in mind when they made this, they need to fire that sculptor because it does not look like an intact ship. Would yes. you agree? They, I think he did make a full intact ship, and then they came by and like hit it with a hammer. <laughs> Actually, that's part of the production process. They actually make the full kit, break it up with a hammer. In a bottle. Yep. (laughs) All right, so uh, let me start by saying that my main issue with this is that it is pretty basic as far as terrain goes. It is basically anything that you could find for your aquarium that is already pre-painted and pre-assembled, made in resin, at any Michaels or Petco or any place that you might go, even Walmart has an aquarium aisle. And I don't think there's anything special about this piece whatsoever. Do you agree or disagree? Uh, yeah, I agree with you. It does look pretty bland. There's really no uniqueness to it as far as like an army design. It just looks like anybody's wooden ship. Yeah, it doesn't even scream Age of Sigmar specifically. Like, I didn't even see anything on it that specifically you go, you look at that sunken ship and you go, ah, that's Age of Sigmar. Like, at least if you look at, like, a bastion um, for Space Marines or, you know, like the um, Firestorm readout or whatever, like, that looks like something from 40K. You can identify that. This is literally just a sunken ship. Yeah. So, another issue I have with it is that it is meant to be underwater. It's got fish swimming through it. Um, so that really cuts out the majority of the number of people that are going to be using this train piece uh-huh. to just Idonath Deepkin players. 
Yeah. Unless you cut the fish out. Yeah. Uh, it also, it kind of, I saw battle reports where they had multiples of them, and it doesn't really look that great to just keep when they pl- like they're planting different ship ships. I mean, mm-hmm. they all look the same, and it just it looks weird just having here's a ship. All of a sudden, here's another ship, and then here's another ship. That looks uh, strange to me. Wait, do you think that's Pearl Harbor? <laughs> do, you <think> that's, <laughs> do you think that's Pearl Harbor? I never thought about that. Um, anyway, so, yeah, I could see definitely, like, at least this, um, what's the, the Sylvanath Wildwood or whatever? Yeah, Sylvanath Wildwood. Yeah, those look like they belong on the battlefield. When a Sylvanath player is placing them, they look like, oh, that's a forest that should be there. Right. Um, now I was in the middle of a city in the middle of a city. Yeah. (laughs) Um, what makes just as much sense is a ship in the middle of a city. So all in all, I think it's a very bland model. I don't think there's anything really special about it. You can get any, you can get it from any retail store or whatever, already pre-painted and assembled. But also I find it, you know, I've always heard that games workshop has a lot of upfront costs, like the research development, design, sculpting, yada, yada. Right. And you think that they would want to get the biggest bang out of their buck when they do make a model set. So you think that you would make it, like, number one, 40k players are not going to buy the ship. It just doesn't scream anything about the future. Now, of course, there's fair, uh, feudal worlds or whatever, but just let's ignore that for the time being. And Age of Sigmar players aren't even really going to buy it because it's an underwater ship. Even if you cut the fish off, it's still just a ship. And so really, it's it's really only relegated to Idonath Deepkin players. Yes, correct. Which bothers me, like when they made the towel, Tidewall. Gun, yeah, gun rig thing. Yeah, or like even the Imperial Bastion, you know, that, that sort of stuff is so specifically one army. Although you could argue that the, um, the Bastions and the, um, what else are they called? Not bunkers. The Imperial Bunkers, yeah. Okay. Um, all of that stuff, at least, you know, we're very Imperium-centric in 40k, generally. The Fortress of Redemption. Yeah, yep, that stuff. You know, we're pretty we're pretty Imperium-centric, so most of your train will probably be Imperium-themed. Boring. Boring, yes. Boxy, boring, whatever. Um, but the Tau, you know, once again, that you're probably not going to see that in regular train unless you play Tau. Uh, right. And I just... That sort of thing kind of weirds me out because you think Games Workshop, like all those years ago, they started doing the multi sets where like one box of models will make, oh, this will make, you know, um, metamorphs or acolyte hybrids. So they they only designed one box and they're going to make you buy it double if you want both units. That's more bang for their buck and I think that's a um, smart business choice. But this, I'm just... I don't know, I kind of shake my head at. Uh, yeah, I can see your points on that. So why do you think they made this? Uh, well, with the rules, uh, I think it's kind of uh, nasty for Deepkin, I believe. I think it's just like the feculent normal for Nurgle, uh, where the rules you know, are crazy for it. Uh, and the Sylvanath Wildwood is good for Sylvanath. Mm-hmm. It's just for the Deepkin players to buy. Uh, you know, they keep buying it, especially when you keep planting more of it. I think that's just really why they 
made it. I guess do they pl- do they pay points for that? Uh, the first one is just zero points. Oh, that's interesting. So basically, what you're saying is is it's just simply to support a new army. Uh, yes. I mean, the uh, Donath Deepkin don't have that many units, right? Maybe six units or something, eight units. Um. Yeah, around there. So then I guess they figure, well, we'll give them some terrain that will be themed like them, and I'm just very iffy on it. Like I said, it looks like a wrecked ship. I mean, they nailed it. It's definitely a wrecked ship. It's definitely a wrecked (laughs) ship. Don't try to make that ship float, because it's not gonna. I mean, a gloom-tide vortex. Oh, shit, yeah. Whatever that is. Do you want that, or do you want that not? I guess you could say from a Idana Deepkin standpoint and from a general player standpoint. Uh, Deepkin standpoint, uh, yeah, I, I have some Deepkin. Uh, I would eventually get that, yes. Uh, so want that for Deepkin, but as a non-Deepkin player, I do not want that. Want that not. Want that not, okay. You got to stick to the vernacular. Justin. Sorry, don't hit me. <laughs> don't hit you again. Um, I would have to say that I want that not with the caveat being, cause I don't play Idonath Deepkin, but with the caveat that I, I was thinking that I have one hobby idea that does kind of strike me for the ship. Although I'll probably just go to Michael's and buy a pre-made ship for this. Uh-huh. But what if you made a really cool looking river terrain for a board and had, I mean, you'd have to make it look like it's deeper than just a river, but you could actually put that in the river and cut the fish out of it. Or a dried up sea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like a, a dried up sea would be cool, too. And you could actually put that in the river and um, do that uh, clear water effect. Uh-huh. You know, that actually could be pretty cool looking. But I guess it is want, want that not for me because I'll just go buy aquarium terrain. There you have it, folks. Now, here's an idea. Welcome back, boys and girls. This is another edition of Well, Here's an Idea. And today, I am joined by my pal, Just James. Hello, Just James. Hello. And today, we also are talking about missions that are a bit army-specific. What was your idea, Just James? Uh, My idea was based on the story in the 7th edition Tyranid Codex between the Tyranids and Demons. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were on a planet... Uh, the Tyranids were on a planet that the Grey Knights were defending a artifact or something that was holding the warps in. And the Tyranids uh, attacked the Grey Knights and killed them, which caused the warp to open, to invade the world. Well, when the uh, demons came surging up, they saw the Tyranids, you know, eating all the life force on the planet. And the demons got pissed off about it and uh, started attacking the Tyranids. And so the Tyranids at first didn't really recognize them as a threat. They were just a little like bugs or whatever. Because you can't eat a demon. Yeah, you can't eat a demon. Um, so they, after a while, the Tyranids eventually saw them as a threat, uh, as a another predator. So they started attacking the demons. Well, after a while, you know, the demons realizing that they aren't getting any souls from these Tyranids, they eventually started being pulled back by the, you know, bigger gods. And um, and the Tyranids eventually were able to uh, chew up 
all the life on that planet. So for the idea for this mission, we have, we said, what, like 15 objectives, something yeah, like that? 15 objectives representing the humans or whatever was that's on the planet uh, that the Tyranids would have to try to eat and the demons would try to corrupt. Okay. Um, first of all, I think that players should probably take turns setting up the objectives, not in a deployment zone, and at least, what, six inches away from each other is probably a good idea. Yeah, that would be a, a, the be a great idea. And if you're doing it narratively, of course, scatter them. Don't just put them along your deployment edge like a rube. Yes. Um, so we were talking about this, and we were saying that maybe we wanted to have two different type of objectives. Uh, no, no, I should say goals, not objectives. That's confusing two different types of goals between the Tyranid player and the Demon player. So what was the goal for the Tyranid player? The Tyranid player would be to hold the objective, and each turn uh, they would gain a point as representing the Tyranids consuming the life force. Mm -hmm. And the Demons would be to... They would also get to the objective... And they would uh, destroy the objective. That would be them, you know, corrupting the soul or d disposing of the body so the Tyranids wouldn't be able to uh, regenerate uh, their units with them. So basically, the Tyranids can just camp on objectives, as many as possible, and get a uh, victory point every turn. But the demons are trying to kill the objectives and get two points every time they kill a, a civilian or cluster of civilians or whatever you want the objective to be, right? Uh, yes, correct. Um, like I said off uh, the microphone, that you know I've always liked the idea of two different armies having two different object. Uh, I shouldn't say objectives, goals. Two different goals in a game, and this I think is probably pretty balanced as far as you know. Either you get one every single turn, or you get two, but then you can't obviously harvest that objective anymore. Um, I think that's pretty interesting, and. Um, Another twist on that would be um, you had the idea of maybe bringing in Tyranid reserves. Yes, for uh, uh, as their Tyranids are holding objectives, they would you know gain those victory points or reserve points, I guess if you want to call them in this instance. And for a, a set number of points, you could bring in more Tyranids uh, as you go along. And the demons, of course, they're coming in and they're destroying the objective so the uh, Tyranids wouldn't be able to gather up more points for to uh, for the reserves. Although, you know, I do like that idea, like they're adding it to the biomass and they're going to be, you know, making more Tyranids and sending them on the board. But, you know, really you could do the same thing with the demons, technically. Like more and more of them are pouring out of the warp. Yeah, you could do that too. You could do that um, either by earning it, by killing the souls, or you could just have a smaller amount of demons every turn come on the board. But the Tyranids have to earn theirs, but they get better stuff when they earn it. That would be interesting. Uh, like, you know, each turn you get just X amount, depending on the size of your game, but you get X amount of troops, demon troops on the board. Uh -huh. And you get, let's say, 100 points of troops every turn come on. But the Tyranids get a larger number of points because they earn them. So you could bring Carnifexes or anything else you wanted on the board. Yes, starting yeah. So yeah, both sides could start off with the you know the infantry dudes, and then for each yeah each points, a certain amount of points you could bring in the heavier stuff, the bigger stuff. Mm -hmm. 
So if you're bringing in, like, automatically bringing in 100 points every turn for demons, just in troops, then you would want to figure out exactly how many points to give the Tyranids each turn for each objective. That might be a little bit of doing, as far as math. Uh, yeah. Because you don't want it to be, like, 1,000 points a turn, but you don't <laughs> want it to be 50 points either, because they're earning it. Yep. So You could also, with this new edition, uh, go by power level. Yeah. Because power level is a smaller number, and that would be much closer to the actual victory points they're earning. Yeah. Because, you know, if they grab, like, you could assume they might be able to grab half the objectives in a turn. That would be seven power level. Yep. Now, I don't know off the top of my head. I have my book here for my Tyranids, but, like, how much power level is... I feel like it's probably seven. I know demons, uh, for a squad of ten demonettes, is four... Oh, 10 Termagants is only 3 power level. Oh, yeah. Shit, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and you know what? They could save them, too. Save them up for a big baddie. Yeah. That uh, would be yeah. awesome. Um, I mean, 3 Hive Guard is 7 power level. So in one turn, you could bring on 3 Hive Guard. Um, uh, yeah. I was actually, uh, I just had the thought of, if you wanted to do an even bigger narrative, you could start with the Grey Knights holding the uh, warp protecting artifact or whatever it was mm-hmm. while the other player plays the Tyranids. And, you know, obviously if the Grey Knights win, nothing happens. If the Tyranids win, then you could do this whole demon uh, uh, mission. That actually would be pretty cool. And that could be either three players involved or if somebody happens to have demons and Grey Knights or whatever. Yeah. Um, so there it is. There is our, well, here's an idea for this edition. And I will uh, talk to you later. See ya. <laughs> now it's time for Real Talk with Pentcron. And now we're back for our main topic for tonight, which is, does the quality of terrain matter in a tournament? Now, of course, everybody has heard in the last couple weeks about the London GT and their mini fiasco they've had regarding terrain. Uh, Apparently, the upper tier boards had perfectly fine terrain, but there's been a picture that went pretty viral and uh, was going around all the social media circuits that they had some pretty shitty terrain on their lower tables. Now, I'm not here to bash London GT. I have no idea what their scenario is. I don't know what their circumstances are. I don't know them personally, whatever. Honestly, I could not give a crap about whatever happened over there. So I'm not trying to bash them in this. But it does bring up the good point is that I was talking to some people at my club and, well, some of them say that terrain does not matter. It really matters if it's functional. Others say that absolutely, if they're paying money, they want to have pretty terrain. Otherwise, they could just go in their kitchen and play with a soda can and a stack of saltines or something. So I, uh, of course, run and I'm the creator of Shorehammer, which is a convention, not just a tournament, but it's a three-day convention in Ocean City, Maryland. So I run this tournament and we have a very specific uh, style of how we run our tournament. And of course, my view is going to be skewed through that. But Let's carry on with it. So the people in my club that I have talked to and elsewhere online say that they are split between the two options. Yes, it matters or no, it does not matter. Competitive type players tend to say that the quality of terrain does not matter as long as it's functional. 
And of course, you can't blame them for that. You don't want a bunch of buildings with a bunch of windows or whatnot and no line of sight blocking terrain. That's obvious. And that I think that enhances the tactics when there is good terrain, good functional terrain on the board. Then when you talk to the casual players, they say absolutely the quality of terrain. I want to be, you know, immersed. I want it to look cool. I want my army to look cool like it's really going through this diorama of a city or whatever. Now, of course, I know tournaments are a bit of a different animal than just casual play or narrative play, but still, I fall in the camp that I would like as a casual player that if I go to a tournament, they have put at least some effort into the terrain. So that begs the question of many people I'm sure were asking and wondering, why would a tournament end up with crappy terrain? And that really is the million dollar question. Um, being that we are in my third year of my convention and I have a little bit of knowledge in that, I can pretty much pan out the reasons why a tournament would have crappy terrain. The way I see it, it really comes down to three possible options why a paid professional business, which is a large tournament, would have crappy terrain. Number one, and this is what we would all like to imagine in some way or another, is that it was completely not their fault they have crappy terrain, some sort of catastrophe happened with setup, and let's say they had a uh, whole pallets of beautiful terrain, and it fell over and busted in a million pieces, or whatever. Of course, we're not wishing ill will on them, but that would at least give them the benefit of a doubt that they had painted and assembled and made pretty terrain, and, oh crap, the night before... You know, Gary ran his truck into a tree and had all of our terrain. Okay, Gary's fine, by the way, in this fictional setting. So that is the thing that is the easiest to swallow. Oh, crap. You know, even though I paid money, they had a hardship, and that's why they have shitty terrain. Number two, which is also an option, but much more likely, is that it can't comes down to poor planning. I know from experience, and any of you that have hosted any sort of event whatsoever knows that it is planning, planning, planning. We plan months in advance and line up our sponsors months in advance, and I'm buying the awards months in advance, and I'm buying terrain all year long, and I'm buying prizes all year long, and getting prizes from sponsors all year long for my once-a-year event. So... To be on day one of your tournament or your convention and to throw out all this shitty styrofoam terrain on the table, I really kind of think that's unacceptable unless some sort of catastrophe happened to you. But otherwise, if it's due to your poor planning, then that is just a shame on you scenario because these people have paid money to be at your event and if you've got crappy terrain for them, then it's kind of a disrespect in my opinion. But... Some competitive players would say as long as it's functional, they don't care. And finally, the third option that you have is sheer greed. You know, I mean, honestly, you know how many tickets you're selling if you're an event. You know how many people are coming, how many people are in the tournament, etc., etc. And generally, you have an idea if this is not your first year, which I'm certain the London GT has gone on before this year. They have an idea of how many people are coming. Are they on an upward twend, uh, trend of attendance? Are they on a downward trend? You know, what, what exactly is going on here? And they can pretty much forecast how many people will be coming and how much terrain they need. And they could be working on this all year round. And you know what? Wouldn't it be a shame if you overestimated it and had too much beautiful terrain? Yes, that would be an awful shame. Everybody would be upset. So you see what I mean? That honestly... 
the three options are it's either a catastrophe that happened that's out of their hands, it's poor planning, or it's sheer greed. And hopefully it was not greed with their situation, and hopefully it was not poor planning. I'm hoping for their sake and for their PR that, you know, it was completely out of their hands. They had no choice in it. But when I get to greed, I feel like you should be prepared if you know how many people are coming. And if it's not your first year, you should have at least an idea of your growth trend. I do say in my verdict of this, in my final opinion, is that it does matter what quality terrain you're using. It doesn't have to be Citadel terrain. I don't give a crap about that. But you should at least have the respect and the gratitude of your attendees to have good terrain. And what I mean by that is not foam blocks that are cut out square with no paint and no nothing on them. What I mean is even if it was kitbashed terrain out of foam board or wood or balsa or a uh, Pegasus Hobbies terrain set or whatever, these people are giving you their money and you have a duty to give them a good show and a good time. And I just feel like it's a huge disrespect. If you pay money, show up to an event, and the terrain is shit, then that's saying something about what the people who are running it think of you as their patron. And the kicker at the end of this, which was the real icing on the cake for this whole fiasco, and I do feel sorry for them. Like I said, I'm not trying to bash them. I'm, I'm just stating how I feel about it. What I'm trying to say is that you require armies to be painted and based, but then you make them play on unpainted square styrofoam boards. That just does not sit well with me, honestly, as a casual player. Um, if you were not requiring, you know, if you said, hey, everybody take whatever gray unprimered army you want, and then they're playing on styrofoam terrain, not only does it sound like you're playing in the ghetto, but it also at least says, hey, we're not requiring you to try, and we're not trying ourselves." And if that's the standard or the bar that you've set, then fine. That, that's fine. But I honestly just think it's a huge disrespect. Hello, everybody. This is the Pimp Cron. I'd like to interrupt my show real quick to talk to you about a very serious subject. If you enjoy this podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you would go on Patreon.com and become a Pimp Cronian. You see, my life is in shambles. My goldfish has a broken neck and is in a wheelchair. My house is currently on fire. My windows leak, even when it's not raining. I have not had a solid meal in three full weeks, and I haven't had a solid stool in three months. I cry blood, and my hamster is still illiterate. But all of that could change for me if you would just support this show on Patreon. Every dollar that you donate will go directly to my hamster's literacy fund. We will teach Nibbles to read. Let's get brutal. And it is time to get brutal with the Pimpcron, where I discuss my free rules, use your own models, RPG light, skirmish wargame. And we are going through the lore and backstory of the game. 
So um, if you want to get any information about what we've already covered, you'll have to listen to previous episodes. And we will dive right in. Right now we're covering different factions, major factions, of this realm. Of course, there's tons and tons of small uh, bandit groups or whatever, but, um, you know, townships and whatnot. But these are the ones that um, actually span the entire continent, usually. So tonight we will start with the Beast Kingdoms. This is a vast and varied organization, and it's an exclusive group made up of only animal men. Uh, this is due to cannibalism being so common in the lands of Ishtar. Animal men are the most commonly used for meat due to their flesh tasting much better than humanoid. It isn't uncommon at all for a clan's dungeon to be full of animal men being cut apart constantly for meat, only to be reawakened back in their cell for it to start all over again. For this reason, many animal men have deemed humanoids all of all kinds to be their enemy and are constantly raiding villages and strongholds to free their brethren from that terrible fate. Uh, their base of operations seems to lie somewhere in the Twisting Woods, which is roughly about the center of the continent, because their flags and symbols are seen most often in this region. The members of this kingdom include all types of animal men, from avian to feline and reptilian, all the way to aqua aquatic and insectoid. So this is exactly the type of group that might house uh, ninja turtles, or lion-o, or the thundercats, or, um, God, if you want to go real crazy, Paw Patrol. <laughs> But um, uh, maybe even Bugs Bunny? Who knows? Uh, but these, these people, like we've talked about before, cannibalism is a big deal. And a lot of people have no issue, you know, uh, murdering a deer person or a pig person versus actually killing somebody that's humanoid. And uh, they've, been, they've gotten sick of this and they're fighting back. The next main, major faction we're going to be covering is the Blood and Salt Trading Company. This is a so-called trading company. Um, it's actually a conglomerate of pirate vessels that work out of their mobile floating base, Ishtar's Bounty. Uh, all races and genders are treated equal in this massive cartel, but the price is high to get in. In order to be accepted into this group, you must successfully steal something from the hold of one of their ships. So, that sounds pretty easy, but of course, it is no easy task. And only a handful of members, or new members, are inducted each year. The rest are eaten by one of the pet scargol iguanas that protect each cargo, cargo hold. Many a time has a group of people been forced to purchase their stolen goods back from this so-called trading company mere hours after being raided. For this reason, these pirates' collective wealth rives even the Great Efrent. This faction mercilessly steals from any and every faction they can, with the exception of one. The Blood and Salt Trading Company is careful not to anger the Legios Broadwater, these people may be crooks, but they are not stupid. So, you know, Efren, we've mentioned Efren and his consortium several times, and he's kind of like the biggest player, arguably, in this realm. And uh, the Blood and Salt Trading Company, I mean, they they have amassed so much wealth from plundering that, um, you know, they basically control the seas around the continent. And I would say they do control the seas, except they really only control the top of the sea or the surface because the people that control the real sea is who I just mentioned, the Legios Broadwater. If you look at the map around the continent of the Aether Realm, you'll notice that it's all water. Nobody is certain exactly where it ends, but the Legis Legios Broadwater is the faction that controls everything under the sea. 
Deep under the murky sea lies the property of the Legios Broadwater, one of the most mercurial groups in the Aether Realm. The land dwellers only know a few things about them. They consist of all types of sentient underwater creatures, from hulking lobster men to sawtoothed mako people and all forms in between. They believe that all that lies below the surface is theirs, and are more than willing to bring any interloper's life to an end if they are interfered with or trespassed in. It is said that they have far more treasure than all the other major factions put together due to shipwrecks, hidden treasure, and deep-sea platinum veins. But generally, they keep to themselves, and they have been known to keep come out of the water in pursuit of treasure hunters, or to pray at altars, or to take metal armor and weapons. For obvious reasons, forging metal underwater is difficult, and is much stronger than their traditional coral plate armor. And also, uh, another interesting thing to note is that Ishtar altars only appear on land. So any Legios Broadwater people that may want blessings from the goddess or her favor through praying at altars have to come out of the sea and get on land in order to do this, which of course will cause conflict with the land dwellers. And that is all for tonight. Good people, thank you for listening to my little brutality segment, and I will catch you next week with more brutality information. Thank you.